Our boys, we got three little boys, if you're a guest, you haven't heard about them, but the rest of you know, we got three little boys. And the thing about little kids uh, that makes them different, I think, than adults, and there, there may be other differences, this to me seems to be the most significant. And that is that they will watch the same movie a thousand times. You know what I'm talking about? It's like once they find a movie they like, that's all they want to watch. Okay. So a while ago, we, went, we were on a cycle of watching the movie Pete's Dragon. Peach Dragon. Now there's an old Peach Dragon. That's, they didn't like that one as much as the new Peach Dragon. But Peach Dragon is this story of this little boy. He's, he's six or seven when the movie takes place. And he has been raised his whole life in the woods by a dragon. Okay, and so he doesn't know any different. He's like a little Tarzan, uh, just kind of a little wild feral kid who has a dragon with him everywhere he goes in the woods, protecting him, looking out for him. So there's this one scene, I've been thinking about it all week as I was preparing this sermon, uh, where Pete is at a creek getting water to drink, and he looks up and across the creek is a grizzly bear. And the grizzly bear, seeing Pete, rises up on his hind legs and just lets out this roar at Pete. Now, Pete is a six or seven-year-old boy, so Pete should run. But instead, Pete stands up just as straight as he can, gets on his tiptoes, and he roars back at the bear. And what Pete doesn't know is at that very moment, his dragon friend has walked up behind him. And so the dragon is right behind Pete, looking at the bear. And so the bear is looking at Pete and then looks at the dragon and turns and, and runs. Okay. And, uh, you know, it's probably not a true story, but... <laughs> probably not. <laughs> But it's kind of a striking image that he's got this absurd courage that has come from living with a dragon all of his life. And there's bears and wolves in those woods, but bears and wolves don't compare to a dragon. Okay, you got a dragon on your side. Okay, I just want you to kind of have that image in your mind as we dive into the text today. We're going to be in Acts chapter 21. We're actually going to then jump from there. So I got keys in my pocket. We're going to jump from Acts 21 to Acts 23, and then we're going to jump from there to Acts 27. So we're going to be in a couple places. If you got your Bible, you might open it up. But if not, it'll be on the screen behind me. Let me set the stage. In Acts chapter 20, just before this, Paul is with some friends, and a prophet shows up. His name is Agabus. And Paul says, hey, everybody, I'm going to Jerusalem. And Agabus says, you know what? If you go to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you up there. They're going to arrest you. They're going to imprison you. And you're going to suffer if you go there. And Paul says, ah, that's no big deal. I'm ready for that. If that's the Lord's will, I'm ready for it. And we talked about that, the readiness for the Lord's will last week. Well, then he gets to Jerusalem, and sure enough, Agabus was right. There's an angry mob at the temple. That mob surrounds Paul. And we read in verse 31, you look there, that they were trying to kill Paul. They're actively trying to kill this guy. Not just arrest him, they're trying to kill him. <laughs> so a Roman commander nearby, you got to remember at this time Jerusalem is, or, or the Jewish people are under Rome. A Roman commander nearby hears what's going on and he rushes down there. And we read in verse 33, look at this with me. The commander came up and he arrested him, Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. So he doesn't know what's going on, why everybody's mad at Paul. So he just thinks, I probably should arrest this guy. So he does. Well, then Paul says, hey, just a second, before we go to the jail, can I talk to everybody? And the guy's like, yeah, sure, you can talk to everybody, no big deal. 
And so he starts talking to the crowd, trying to win them over. Only it's one of those situations where you think if you talk this situation out, it's going to get better. And it doesn't. It gets worse. Okay, so Paul's trying to defend himself. And he actually just makes everybody more mad. And so at the end of that talk, and that's in chapter 22, uh, they just want to kill him more. Okay. And so the, the Roman commander's like, oh, okay, what do I do with this? So he pulls him back into the jail, and just as he's about to lock him up for good, Paul says, hey, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen, so you can't actually do this to me. And so he's like, oh, no, this is bad news. He doesn't want to get in trouble. He's wrongfully arrested a Roman citizen without a trial. And so he uh, releases him. And then immediately the Jews gather around Paul again and try to kill him again. So the same Roman commander hears about it and he's like, well, all right, that didn't work. So he rushes back in and he arrests him a second time. So then come with me to Acts chapter 23. I've just summarized two chapters there. Acts chapter 23, verse 11. It's this second arrest when he's locked away at night that the following night the Lord stood near Paul and said, take courage. As you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must we want to pay attention anytime the Lord says, must, this must happen. So you must also testify in Rome. So at a moment, which must have been a low moment for Paul, just one setback after another, at one of probably his lowest moments in ministry, here he had hoped to just stop by Jerusalem on his way to Rome and just to make it there smoothly so he could testify to the ends of the earth, which Rome represents to him. And here he is arrested, not once, but twice, and now locked away inside of this prison cell, one setback after another. And it's at that moment, Jesus comes to him and says, hey, don't worry about it. I'm still with you. And because I'm with you, my will for you will be done. It must be done. <clears throat> All right, that's verse 11. Verse 12 makes it seem like there is no way that's going to happen. Look at verse 12 with me. The next morning, some Jews formed a conspiracy, <clears throat> and they bound themselves with an oath not to eat or drink until they had killed Paul. More than 40 men were involved in this plot. All right, their plan is 40 guys, they're stationed right outside the jail, and their plan is we're going to tell the commander we need to talk with Paul for just a second just to work out like a little minor thing. And as soon as Paul walks out of the jail, the 40 of them are going to fall on him and bushwhack him. They're going to kill him. 40 guys. All right, so we're going to try something here. This may be the worst idea I've ever had, um, but I ran it by Brescia and Russ, and they liked it. So if it was a bad idea, it's their fault. Well, here's what we're going to do. I need 40 men to come up here. Okay, so if you're wondering if I'm talking about you guys, yes, I need 40 of you. So 40 men, uh, come on up. Chris Barber, you're always ready. Come stand right here. Chris Barber on this side. I need 40 men going that way on these steps. Watch out for that black box right there. 40 men. I need, like, I need a, I need a man's man, 40 of you. If, if you think of yourself as just a man, come over on this side. Amos, come over, 40 of y'all over here. Now, I'm not keeping count. I just need y'all up here. Watch out for the cords. 40 of y'all go to that side. <clears throat> okay, I'm not keeping count. Somebody tell me if we're getting close to 40 here. Head over there, guys. That's probably 40-ish. What do y'all think? 40? Okay. Is it, how's that look? 40-ish? 
30 something? That's not even 40. I need more guys. Jim, Jimmy Atkins, what are you doing? Get up here, man. Jimmy Atkins, come on up here, dude. What are you doing, guys? Yeah, okay, here we go. There we go. All right, here we go. We're, we're at about 40 right here. Come on up here. All right, uh, I, need, I need one guy named Paul. Paul Garrison, come here. You knew it. <laughs> He's bearded. The Apostle Paul probably had a beard. Okay, come stand right here, Paul Garrison. Now, I want y'all to look at Paul. Now, Paul, he is definitely a man's man. I mean, look at, he looks like a lumberjack today, Paul Garrison does. He didn't even know he was going to be up here for this. I want you to look at this, 40 verses 1. Do you see this? I, I want you to visualize what this looks like. 40 guys who are hungry, they have vowed not to eat. 40 guys who are hungry. These guys are like, yeah, we're pretty hungry at this point. 40 guys versus one guy. I mean, does the visual help for you to see this? 40 guys have made a plan. They're going to kill this one guy. And Paul's strong. He's probably scrappy, but he does not stand a chance against 40 guys. And likely he'd be chained up walking out of the, I mean, even if he could run fast, and Paul, he can't, he's not that fast. Even if Paul could run fast, 40 guys. Let me show you this while you 40 guys are still up here. Throw this up on the screen. This is from 2 Chronicles. I want you to see this. Look at this. Lord, the God of our ancestors, are you not the God who's in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand and no one can withstand you. You know, when you and I look at 40 guys versus one, we think he's got no chance. What does 40 guys look like to Jesus? You know, I told you I've written on my whiteboard and on my office, told you this last week, a note to remind myself, who can do more, you or the Lord of heaven and earth? Right, what does 40 guys look like to Jesus? What does a bear look like to a dragon? Right, nothing, nothing. So how does Jesus foil this plan of 40 men? So you stay up here for just a minute. I need a boy. I need a, 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 a small boy to come up here. Are there any? Oh, we got no. Okay, Noah's right here. Noah's right here. Oh, no, you're one of the 40 bad guys. You're, you're a man, Noah. You're a man. All right. Here's a boy here. Here's my boy. Okay. So, hey, everybody's got to see you, man. Okay. Um, here's what God does. God takes a boy, Paul's nephew. And while these 40 men are talking amongst themselves right outside the prison, and they're like, hey, we're gonna kill Paul. Don't tell anybody, but they're talking kind of loudly. As it happens, this boy just walks by. He just walks by. You're not loving this, I can tell. And he overhears 40 men talking about killing Paul. So he runs to Paul, this little boy does, and he tells Paul what he's heard. You know Paul. He tells Paul what he heard, Paul sends the boy to run to the commander, and the commander of this Roman garrison sneaks Paul out in the middle of the night. And so the question is, is it accidental that a boy is there at that moment? Probably not. A boy that's aligned with Paul, he's part of Paul's family, he's Paul's nephew. Like, why do we think the boy is there listening to these 40 men? The providential hand of God, we would say. So what does God do? Uh to sabotage the plans of men against his will. He doesn't raise up 40 other men to come and fight these guys or 80 men to come and crush them or 120 to annihilate them. What does he do? He sends a boy to listen to him. And through that boy sabotages the plans of 40 men who are hungry, 
Look at that. All right, you guys go sit down. I appreciate y'all. Paul, I'm sorry about that. Y'all go sit down. You can clap for him. Yeah, man. These 40 guys. Okay. All right. I just wanted you to see that. I don't, if that didn't work, tell me and I won't use it in next service. You just, you let me know. I make notes as I go in the morning. I'm like, that joke didn't work. So, all right. <clears throat> Look with me here at Revelation. I was reading this this week and it reminded me of that visual. This is in Revelation. The Lord Jesus speaks to seven churches through John. He sends them each a letter. And this is what he says to the church in Philadelphia. Look at this. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write this. These are the words of him who is holy and true, Jesus, who holds the key of David, Jesus. What he opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. That no one can shut. I mean, have you prayed perhaps like I have at times? Lord, if this would be your will, would you open the right doors and close the wrong ones? And the message of Jesus himself is, if I open this door for you, you are going to walk through it and nobody's going to close it. If I have opened this door, my will will be done, must be. Okay. Uh, I was listening to the radio, Christian radio station the other day, and they do those little 60 seconds of inspiration. You've heard those? And um, this voice comes on that I had not heard before on this radio station, but I immediately recognized the voice. It was Tim Tebow. Now, you'll remember Tim Tebow was a college superstar, college football superstar, and attempted to be an NFL superstar. That did not work out, uh, but was a college superstar. And he's also a great Christian. He's a witness for Jesus all over the world. He leads the Night to Shine ministry, uh, which is our, one of our special events for those with special needs. And he's got a big heart for that ministry. And so we're, we're really grateful for that. One time, Tim sent me an email uh, it was one of those where you try to reply and you can't, but we're friends. And uh, so Tim was on the radio and Tim, he's doing this little 60 seconds of inspiration. And he says something and it just really struck me. He says, you know, I play college football and plan to go to the NFL. And basically that didn't work out. And he said, that felt like a huge setback to me, a huge setback. He said, now, looking back on it, I see it because of that, I've had all of this opportunity to travel the world, sharing the news about Jesus, I've gotten to invest in ministry for those who are special to me. And now, he said, what I thought was a setback, it turns out it was a set up. And I was like, I see what you did there, Tim. I see what you did there. Okay, admittedly, it's a little cheesy, which those 60 seconds of inspiration often are, but I want you to think about that. What I thought was a setback turned out was a setup for what he wanted, right? So if you look here at these chapters, Acts 21, Acts 22, Acts 23, really going all the way to Acts 27, what seems to be happening for Paul are huge setbacks, He's threatened to be killed. He's arrested again and again and again. But let's specifically, let's look at the arrest. He's arrested multiple times. 
And for Paul, who hopes to get to Rome to preach the gospel there, this has to feel like a huge setback. He's chained and in prison. But it turns out the imprisonment is the thing that saves his life. You know, like, he thought, man, this is a bummer. I'm supposed to be in Rome preaching the gospel. Turns out it's because he's in this prison cell protected that 40 guys can't come and kill him. You know, the thing he thought was a setback was the setup of God. I've talked about this for years. I got to go into the Shelby County Corrections and teach the Bible on Wednesday mornings. And all of those guys in there, all of them to a man, hated being there and felt like it was a huge setback. They would miss things like their children's birthdays, okay? Miss things like their mom sick and in the hospital or something like that. And it just felt like a huge setback on their life. At the same time, they would also hear about friends of theirs, nearly to a person, while they were in there, friends of theirs would die by gang violence, drug overdose. And every one of them would say something along the lines of, that could have been me. That could have been me. So here they are in a prison, this place they don't want to be, being protected from what they know was likely coming for them, being given job skills through Hope Works being given a faith that so many of them didn't have before. I saw so many of those guys baptized out there. And now, in part through your really generous giving, they have a place to go when they get out through the transitional living facility at Hope Works and the next one that they're about to build that you've helped to make possible, right? And so what seemed as those guys were in there to be a huge setback was without a doubt a setup for what God wanted in their life. In fact, Lindsay and I have told this story a couple of years ago. We saw one of those guys at a burger joint in Bartlett couple years ago. We were on a date night. We got, got a babysitter, went out on a date night to spend some quality time together. And here was one of those guys that I had worked with in there on Wednesday mornings who had been a part of the Hope Works. And he was out now working as a cook at this burger joint, providing for his family, doing really well. And he sees me there and he comes out from behind the uh, grill and he comes and sits down with Lindsay and I, and he just begins to tell me how being in jail changed his life. Be, getting to be part of Hope Works in there changed the course of his life. And I was like, that's great, dude. I'm on a date. <laughs> Lindsay and I just want a little quality time. He sat with us the whole meal, whole meal. Man, praise God for that guy. Praise God for that guy. Right, what he thought was a setback was a setup. That's what he was testifying to. Now, that's not always immediately clear to us, is it? It's not always clear to us. Uh... I think about the Psalms and the Psalms right next to each other, one Psalm and then another. You'll have a Psalm about, hey, God, where are you? Why is my life going this way? Why aren't you showing up? And the very next Psalm will be, let's remind ourselves of all the ways God was there for us in the past when we didn't think he was. One, two, three, four, five. You know, you're like, sing, this is the worst. I hate this. And then you sing, oh yeah, God's going to take care of me and his will is going to be done in my life. And you sing those things right after each other. Paul talks about this in Romans 8, some of the greatest lines ever written in Scripture, Romans 8, 28. You probably have these hanging on your wall at your house. Um, football players have these under their eyes in the games. Uh, so it runs the risk of being cliche. But I, I just want to, just for a second, remind you of how sweet these words are. Look at this with me. Romans 8, 28. We know in all things... God works for the good of those who love him. 
who have been called according to his purpose, his will. And what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, he will not also, along with him, graciously give us all things, won't he? I look at Jesus and I'm reminded, as bad as it may be, his will is going to be done in my life. So much later, Acts 27, if you've got your Bible and you want to turn over there, Paul's finally on his way to Rome after all of these imprisonments. He's on a boat, he's going to Rome, and the boat starts to sink. I mean, irony of ironies. He's finally getting there. And the boat starts to sink. But listen to what he says to his fellow shipmates here. He says, I urge you to keep up your courage. Remember what Jesus said to him in Acts 21? Take courage. You must testify about me there. Okay. Paul says, he's still living in that courage. I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and he said, don't be afraid, Paul. You must, there's that word again, you must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Man, that encourages me. Doesn't it encourage you? Last week we talked about the, sometimes the difficulty of God's will. And sometimes God's will is terrifying and to trust it takes great faith. But there are other times when our only hope is that his will will be done, that it must be done, right? When everything else seems to be massive setbacks, that his will is setting us up for what he would have for us. And that there is a great encouragement that comes from that. But the last thing I want to say is, and just in this last minute or two, is that what this, and this whole encouragement to Paul is given in the context of him laboring for the Lord, working, fulfilling the calling on his life of witnessing to Jesus. That's the context in which Jesus says, what I have planned for you must happen. And what that reminds me as we look towards our outreach contribution next week is though what we bring or what we offer as we work for the Lord may be meager, but he will take that and magnify it for what must happen according to his will. That is what he'll do. We're going to raise $215,000 next week. That's relatively small compared to the massive problems of the world. Right? Unless there's a dragon behind us. And then $215,000 is a pretty mighty roar. I'll leave you with this. This is 1 Corinthians 15. Thanks be to God. He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm and let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain. Is that because you're so great? No. It's because his will is so good and his power is unmatched. Let me pray over you. God, would your will be done in us as you see fit on earth as it is in heaven, Lord? And allow us to trust that and to take great courage when it doesn't seem to be the case that what we labor for, for your sake in this world, is not in vain because you are behind us and it must happen by your will. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.